Welcome to the future of fuel economy. Hi everybody, Jim Park here. This is episode two of season three of HDT Talks Trucking. Sometime later this year, the first of the GHG 2021 truck models will hit the dealer lots. To meet the first round of VPA's GHG reduction targets, these trucks will be fitted with some advanced fuel-saving technology, mostly stuff we've already seen before or are already using now, such as aero devices, low-rolling resistance tires, and more. But to meet the 2024 and 2027 targets, truck makers may need to get a bit more aggressive in their use of advanced technologies. In the first half of the podcast, Mike Roth of the North American Council for Freight Efficiency outlines what advanced fuel-saving technologies might be coming down the pike in 2024 and 2027. In the second half of the podcast, we'll hear from two subject matter experts, Joel Morrow on downspeeding and Rob Janik on cylinder deactivation. All that and more is still to come on HTT Talks Trucking. Don't go away. Count on HDT to bring you the latest news on COVID-19 and lots of original reporting from our award-winning editorial team. Our coverage includes market reports, reader surveys, webinars, and more. Check out our COVID-19 Information Center links on truckinginfo.com. So we've got Mike Roth joining us right now. He's the Executive Director of the North American Council for Freight Efficiency. He's been watching GHG 1 and 2 pretty closely over the years, and uh, he's probably the right guy to talk to to figure out where we're going with uh, GHG Phase 2. Mike, how are you this afternoon? No, I'm doing great, Jim. Um, thanks for having me. And, you know, I, I uh, we've been watching the greenhouse gas regulations, both Phase 1 and Phase 2, uh, because we do think it's important to, you know, help accelerate adoption of these uh, technologies for fuel saving. Uh, you know, when, when fuel is low uh, price, sometimes uh, fleets stop buying some of these technologies. And, you know, when it's high, then they want them as fast as they can get them. And, so the rule kind of flattens that out, uh, you know, a bit, Jim. It, it, it says, okay, the manufacturers need to build more fuel-efficient trucks, and so the, you know, the various mix of all their production gets put into a calculation. And so the, the, uh, you know, they over time, whether it's 2021, 2024, 2027, they need to meet um, certain combined levels. You know, they don't really call it cafe like they do in cars, but. It sort of is that the you know they average out all the trucks that they're building and with all the different features on it and um, they either comply or they don't over 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 time. So the rules here um, and phase two starts in a few months. Yeah, model year twenty twenty one I guess is the first one that we can expect to see any changes. What do you think's coming in twenty twenty one as far as model year twenty twenty one that is uh, as far as new technology or is it just going to be stuff we've already got out there working right now? Do you think? So it'll be the things that are already out there. Um, the truck manufacturers and you know trailer manufacturers to some extent, although you know the rule is paused for trailers, they've been you know they've known about this rule for five years. I mean it was finalized in 2016. So they've put into their product development cycles um, you know various technologies that um, that can help deliver. And some of those might have launched in 2019 or 2020 or even before that, before we get into the 2021 model year. And so, um, you know, as, as NACFI, you know, you, you know, many of you listening probably saw our run on less in 2017 and then again in 2019 where, you know, fleets brought the best equipment they had for fuel economy. Those trucks will have a lot of the technologies that will emerge and become, you know, 
higher production scale as we go through the 2021, uh, you know, greenhouse gas phase two step. And so, you know, those are things like, you know, lower rolling resistance tires, uh, you know, more aerodynamics, whether they're, um, you know, skirts or on, on the tractors or even these, you know, drive fairing, um, uh, aerodynamic, you know, drive wheel fairings. And, and those um, all will contribute to a, uh, you know, a lower fuel consumption uh, greenhouse gas gem model that the manufacturers need to report to the government. So for 2021, we expect it to be broader use of current technologies. And so to get broader acceptance, the manufacturers need to offer them to the, uh, to the buyers and, and, you know, price them. So one of the things a lot of people don't talk about is these technologies will, will you know, the manufacturers can price them more aggressively to get more fleets to buy them uh, to meet their compliance level. So we see that um, becoming a, a lever that the truck manufacturers will, will, will use in, in their uh, pricing of different features. Yeah, they're, they're, they're encouraging the, uh, the fleet buyers to adopt more of this technology so they'll earn the credits on the trucks that they sell. If they start pricing some of this technology beyond the, you know, the fleet's threshold for pain, the uptake's going to be a little bit lighter than I hope. Yeah, and that's kind of back to the the reason for the rule, right? Is that that um, you know, with the over the last decades, we've seen big swings in fuel price. So, you know, the uh, this 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 helps with that. And um, you know, also there's the design of the features or the design of the of the technologies for broader use. So, what I mean by that is that you know, here um, you know there may be a uh, a particular. Uh, new product that's available, but it's only available on six by fours and not four by twos, or it's available on sleepers and not day cabs. So for the menus to, um, you know, get the volumes up to get the benefits in the regulation, uh, you know, they'll need to, to design the and then make those features uh, available across the broader uh, product offering. So uh, we're seeing that happen right now. Um, and, you know, even things like you know, turbo compounding at a manufacturer, some variable accessories, um, water pumps, and so forth that are available on some manufacturers. Different truck builders will, you know, offer either as standard equipment or optional equipment these technologies differently. And so they'll all have different recipes for how they meet the, the greenhouse gas rule over time. And, you know, as we move then into 2024 and 2027, both additional steps in this that are, you know, law in the regulation as we speak – uh, the manufacturers will bring uh, some new technologies to the table and continue to expand uh, the ones that exist in order to uh, to meet the uh, you know the um, overall regulation. One of the ones we've heard talked about uh, future technologies quite a bit actually is the uh, offboarding of various engine components like air compressors, water pumps, those sorts of things. Switching over to a perhaps a forty eight volt electrical system that hasn't been decided yet, but. Uh, taking some of that parasitic draw off the engine uh, is bound to do something for fuel economy. Do you expect to see much of that coming in 2024? That's a great question. So NACV has studied this, and we've got a couple of confidence reports on um, you know electrifying accessories and taking some of this load off. And it you know, it, it makes sense from an engineering perspective. Um, you know that consumes a lot of fuel, and if we can use them only when we need them, we'll, you know we'll save fuel. But you are exactly right, Jim. We most likely we'll need 48 volt to do that. And that's a huge step. And, you know, the industry tends to look at that as, as one of those steps that all manufacturers will take at the same time. And so, wow. And that, you know, that takes a lot of planning, a lot of work with the 
manufacturers, the suppliers of the components, um, even through organizations like TMC and so forth. So um, it, it'll be an interesting to see. You know, I, I don't see it for 2024. Could be wrong. That's pretty quickly when you think about these product development cycles. But I would say this. You know, I'm a super truck, a Department of Energy super truck merit reviewer, and um, you know, all of the five super trucks that are uh, being worked on right now in Super Truck 2 from all the manufacturers um, include 48-volt systems. And these are trucks that will be hauling freight in the next year or two. And so as the truck builders looked at, you know, how do we build something that's, um, you know, a prototype, these DOE Super Trucks are prototypes, but how do we build something that, that meets those levels of performance? They saw 48-volt as a must. It's amusing to me uh, that that first super truck that came out, the Cummins Peterbilt uh, effort, uh, I think it was 10.1 uh, miles per gallon they achieved, and everybody was going, ooh, ah, isn't that amazing? And now 10 miles per gallon is, I hate to say it, routine among some of the uh, higher-performing fuel economy people. Yeah, it's funny. You know, Naxi's been at it 10 or 11 years now, and when we first said we were going to help the industry double efficiency of moving goods with semi-trucks, you know, class eight heavy duty, we were laughed at, you know, and here we've gone from, you know, five and a half, six is the average to, you know, 10, 11, 12 being proven, uh, you know, not in all situations, of course. And, and, you know, you, you have to look at payload hauled and so forth, but, uh, yes, absolutely. Jim, they're, 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 this is, um, walking the walk, not just talking. And, and these are real trucks, um, you know, getting done. Now, something I'd mention with respect to 48 volt and even some of these, you know, uh, aggressive things, you know, cylinder deactivation and other things, you know, the industry is looking at electric trucks, for goodness sake. So, you know, here we, that's a huge, much bigger change than some of these things. So I think that the industry is not the old industry where we struggled with new technology. It's, um, uh, you know, an industry that really embraces it. Well, in the early days of Super Truck, some of the hardware that was on on that particular Peterbilt uh, Cummins truck, uh, the heat exchangers, uh, for example, um, <laughs> a plumber's nightmare. People looked at that and went, what? You're going to add like 500 pounds worth of heat exchangers and everything? Obviously, that's not going to happen. But uh, as far as emerging technology goes, um, stuff that, as you say, made us really nervous five years ago, is more readily accepted, I think, today, is provided it's not too complicated and hairy. It does need to simplify the truck um, and not make it too complicated. I think you really hit on it. And I think there's a, you know, look longer term, there is a big challenge for internal combustion engines. You know, we're talking about more NOx reduction. We're talking and looking and thinking about much higher efficiency. You know, the super truck have 55% brake thermal efficiency engines. Um, so to get there, they need to do things like waste heat recovery and low temperature cooling and, and some things that are quite complex. And, you know, when we do look at the electric truck, which is a very simple powertrain, I mean, of course, it's got a lot of software and it's got power electronics and so forth. But, you know, the fact that you can take the uh, electricity off the grid straight into a battery, straight to the wheels, no after treatment, none of these other, you know, exotic systems. It's very simple. So it'll be very interesting to see, you know, how far we can take these diesel engines with respect to criteria emissions and greenhouse gas uh, before we just, they become too complex and electric trucks become the answer. 
Well, as far as diesels go, um, and the Class 8 diesel truck as we know it, the OEMs are going to earn credits uh, based on the fuel efficiency levels that they can bring to a truck and get into market. Are the electric trucks that they deliver to market going to be creditable, or will you know the the lack of emissions on those electric trucks count uh, into the uh, you know the positive side of the credit pile? It's kind of interesting. I, you know, whether it was luck or skill, and they probably won't admit it, but the um, the EPA, when they did the rulemaking for this greenhouse gas phase two, which starts in January of 2021, they um, put in place a um, you know a, a credit for uh, for electric trucks. And so uh, as truck manufacturers build electric trucks, that gives them credits. Now, I'm by far an expert. I don't even know how that actually works, but um, they will get credits that they can put against and be involved in this greenhouse gas phase two for diesel trucks. And if you don't build diesel trucks, you still get those credits and there could be a way to, you know, sell those or use those. So uh, there's a uh, there's an incentive already in law that helps um, uh, th- this. It actually helps this challenge of uh, where do I develop my money or where do I develop my products in diesel engines versus electric and so forth. So theoretically, then that could cut the diesel people a little bit of slack in having to pour all that investment into, you know, half a mile per gallon improvement if they can recover that with credits on the electric trucks they sell. Yeah, it gives them another way to meet the requirement and to work with the industry. There will be, you know, early adopters for electric trucks. There'll be, you know, laggards and late adopters, right, over the next decades. And so um, diesel trucks will be here for a long time. And uh, the rule, I think, for the most part, uh, as I understand it, helps support that transition rather than, um, you know, be in conflict with it. Okay, so... uh Put on your uh, looking forward sunglasses here for a second. Come 2027, when when things get uh, you know at the at the end of the GHG Phase Two plan, uh, what sort of technology do you think will be fairly commonplace by then? And, and looking further forward, what happens after 2027? Yeah, great question. I don't know. I mean, so right now we've got the Clean Truck Initiative at the federal level looking at um, NOx reduction, uh, you know, in the, in the middle of, to the end of this decade. So they're saying that, um, you know, we have the greenhouse gas rule and that we've been talking about for this whole period of time, but we may want to decrease NOx as well. California is already moving forward there. So um, this regulation is, you know, really got two separate work streams. There's two separate streams here, one around uh, fuel economy, greenhouse gas, and another around uh, criteria emissions, and they don't always like each other. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I don't know where that all headed. Might be a reason uh, why an electric truck, you know, might continue to get support and, and legs uh, because of, the, of some of those challenges. Uh, but of course, you know, electric trucks, as we've all been talking about with infrastructure, with all kinds of other uh, difficulties in, in adoption, it'll have its own challenges. So I think in, you know, as we enter, as we get into the end of this decade, we will be, um, uh, you know, this will be challenging work, but it'll also be fun and interesting because, you know, where fleets and the manufacturers figure out to put these trucks in the right place to gain benefit from their advantages and, you know, mi- mitigate their, you know, their negatives or their challenges will be, um, you know, they'll be the ones that win. 
Well, it's a great conversation, Mike. I appreciate you uh, sharing some of your insights with us on uh, GHG, etc. Thanks. Yeah, well, I, I think we diesel won't go away soon, but batteries are coming, and uh, uh, it's going to be an exciting time. Whether you choose batteries or fuel cell electric or even advanced diesel technology, you can be sure that by 2027, we'll be burning a lot less diesel fuel than we are today. Coming up in the third part of the podcast, we'll hear how Joel Morrow is now running trucks down the highway at an astounding 900 RPM. But first, Rob Janik of Jacobs Engine Brakes shares some of the fuel-saving benefits of making a six-cylinder engine into a three-cylinder engine. Stay with us. There's more going on in trucking today than just COVID-19. Stay on top of what's happening in trucking with HDT's award-winning news coverage and technical features. We offer webinars, market reports, reader surveys, and more. Stay on top of your game with truckinginfo.com. Up next in this future fuel-saving technologies episode is Rob Janik of Jacobs Vehicle Systems. You'll know his company better as the pioneer of the Jacobs engine brake, more commonly known as the Jake brake. The company recently developed a new technology designed to deactivate as many as three cylinders on a six-cylinder diesel engine. The intent is to reduce NOx output from the engine and improve fuel efficiency. So, Rob, thanks for joining us today on HTT Talks Trucking. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for inviting me. Before you explain how cylinder deactivation works, could you explain what Jacobs is doing to address these new emissions uh, regulations that are coming from uh, the California Air Resources Board and the EPA? Yeah, uh, Jacobs has actually been working directly with uh, CARB and EPA, along with other industry consortiums, to evaluate all these proposed regulations and how they could be met. It was actually through these uh, evaluations and tests that we found that the emission goals were actually determined and then also found that they were achievable. Uh, and we're also working with engine companies around the world, providing demonstration hardware and to, that are meant to improve fuel economy and emissions. Uh, we're evaluating the value of these systems directly with them, but also trying to prove that they're ready for the road. Okay, so can you tell me how cylinder deactivation responds to the uh, regulations that are being proposed by CARB and EPA? And ultimately how well, it works? What it does. Yeah, sure. Um, so how it works is basically we just turn off the intake and exhaust main events. So we do this with a mechanism on a lot of the engines. These are overhead cam engines. We just deactivate with a, a bridge mechanism actually turns off those main events. So when the rock arms are still moving up and down, they're no longer opening the intake and exhaust valves. Now you combine that with turning off injection and you basically shut down the entire cylinder. And the common way of doing this, you turn off the cylinder, you turn off the the fuel injection, and no longer you're pumping that air volume through that uh, engine. So you turn a six-cylinder engine into a three-cylinder engine, for example. And what this does is no longer you have a large uh, 16 or 15-liter engine, now you have half that engine displacement. So you don't have to burn as much fuel at these uh, low load conditions. So you're burning a lot less fuel, but at the same time, you're generating more heat because the working cylinders have to work a little bit harder. So that raises the temperature in those cylinders, and that's great for the after-treatment system. The after-treatment systems that have been in place since about 2010 need to be hot. That's how it converts the, the, the harmful NOx into less harmful gases and gets rid of the, you know, the pollutants. So then what you're saying is if you've got... Uh, six cylinders in, in, in an engine running at, say, 30% load, lightly loaded truck or maybe empty, the exhaust temperature is going to be really low because you're not pumping a lot of fuel through it. But then if you take 
that six-cylinder engine, turn it into a three-cylinder by deactivating those other cylinders. Now the three cylinders have to work harder. Consequently, fuel temperature or exhaust temperature is hotter and the after-treatment system is running more efficiently. Is that the way this works? That's exactly how it works. And it's usually at these lightest loads, especially in the idle conditions or really light cruising loads is where this is most effective. So what happens to the other three cylinders and the piston just bobs up and down and just goes along for Mm -hmm. the ride? Yes. Yeah, you, you shut down the intake and exhaust, and basically the piston is just working against that air spring is what we call it. So mm-hmm. if you got tra- trapped cylinder charge in there, then it's just basically an air spring. So it's no lost energy, just a little bit of friction of the cylinder, the piston going up and down, but it's not that much by comparison to how much airflow would be going through there. And it's two interesting factors of cylinder deactivation is, one, it's not only are the three cylinders working a little bit higher temperature, but it's also the mass flow, the amount of air going through the entire engine is what actually cools the after-treatment system down. So net okay. temperature is higher, but also mass flow goes down. So therefore, it's a higher overall temperature that we're looking for. We're not as much cooling going through that after-treatment system. And how is this going to improve fuel economy? Well, just as I mentioned before, just by having to have less cylinders actually fired, you're actually making a, a, a large engine into basically operating like a small engine. So it's operating with a, a fuel consumption of a much smaller engine. Okay. So why is Jacobs pursuing this? Uh, I, I thought you guys were just about engine braking. Well, yes, uh, Jacobs was, has been developing engine brakes for over 60 years, but it's actually through those years that we had to develop lots of innovative solutions around engine braking to work on hundreds of different valve trains. But as we continue to improve braking power and integrate engine braking into more seamlessly into all these overheads that we started in the 1990s to start developing variable valve systems. So it was through the valuable valve system development that we actually came across these needs. One is, you know, cylinder deactivation, other different kinds of, of valve opening and closings to improve fuel economy. And one of those mechanisms that came out of that um, was cylinder deactivation because cylinder deactivation was integral to our, one of our latest uh, developments, which was high power day engine, engine braking. That was basically taking an engine and switching it from a four-stroke engine into a two-stroke engine brake. So no longer do we just get an engine brake every uh, two revolutions of the engine. By cylinder, adding cylinder deactivation and a powerful engine brake, you can actually get two engine braking cycles every uh, four strokes of the engine or every single revolution of the engine. And from the driver's seat, um, what would the driver feel? Would, would they notice this? Uh, the engine convert or going from six cylinders to three? Um, anything that they would see or feel or hear? Well, the, the whole goal is to make it completely seamless to the driver. Uh, I, would, I would liken it to what you might see in the past car market. Uh, if you've ever driven some of these uh, Honda cars or some other vehicles out there that have cylinder deactivation already, the only time you know that it goes into those modes is you see a little red light, you turn on your dashboard when it goes into eco mode. That's actually what's usually happening is it's going into some form of cylinder deactivation or two, or two mode of operation. And you calibrate it right and you balance the engine right, you won't even notice the difference. The engine will just smoothly go in between these two different modes of operation and you'll just see the benefits. The after-treatment system will stay hot, you'll get great emissions, and your fuel consumption will go down. Well, that sounds like a pretty elegant system. And I, by the way you describe it, it doesn't sound to me like there's going to be a lot of hardware to bolt onto the engine to make this work. No, our, our designs are always meant to be integrated fully into the, the current valve train. So some modification of the hardware, is, but it's going to be seamless to the overhead. We don't add anything to the outside of the engine. Uh, that's uh, the after-treatment systems. That's what they're, they're working on. 
our systems are always designed to be integrated into the valve train. Well, Rob Janik of uh, Jacobs Vehicle Systems, I uh, thank you for sharing that with us today and explaining uh, the benefits of cylinder deactivation. Can't wait to see it in action. Thanks for having me. I'm sure you'd agree that integrated is always nicer than bolt-on, so cylinder deactivation already has at least one thing going for it. Up next is a technology that needs no new hardware, just an adjustment to the driveline spec. Joel Morrow, the moderator of the 9 Plus MPG Facebook page, joins us to talk about downspeeding right after this. Count on HDT to bring you the latest news on COVID-19 and lots of original reporting from our award-winning editorial team. Our coverage includes market reports, reader surveys, webinars, and more. Check out our COVID-19 Information Center links on truckinginfo.com. So we're talking now with Joel Morrow. Uh, technically, he's the Chief Executive Officer at Alpha Drivers Testing and Consulting. Uh, some people might know him as Mr. Fuel Economy. He runs a couple of Facebook pages dedicated to uh, high fuel economy, and he's done a great deal of study and research into what works and what doesn't. Uh, we're talking today about downspeeding. Uh, basically, that's the uh, the principle where you use tall gears, big tires to keep your engine speed lower uh, to get better fuel economy. So, Joel, you've spent a lot of time working on downspeeding. Where are you now with that process? Where are what, what kind of a numbers are you looking at? Oh, we are running some some pretty uh, some pretty fast gears right now. Um, we're getting ready to test a. 2.16 ratio with an overdrive transmission. Um, that's going to put us out around 75 mile an hour at 1100 RPM right in that neighborhood, maybe just a touch under. Um, and of, of, of course, with that very tall overdrive, that means we're going to utilize direct drive at more moderate speeds. And so we're working on some shift logic to take advantage of the direct drive when appropriate and the extreme, very fast overdrive when appropriate. And um, both these gears will technically be downsped, even though one's slightly higher in the RPM range at a at a slower speed, we're still, you know, right on the, the flat line of the torque curve, and we're we're kind of off the horsepower curve. So it's it is definitely downsped. So speaking of torque curves and horsepower curves, eleven hundred on the engine that you're running, which I believe is a Mac MP8, if I'm not mistaken. Wh- what does the torque curve look like on that engine? It starts to make peak torque right at nine hundred RPM. Nine hundred. Um, Horsepower, yeah, horsepower comes in right around 1,350 on this particular engine. Okay. So if you're running, you're not going to be running 1,100 RPM at, uh, at highway speed. You're going to be running a little bit less. How close are you to peak torque or dropping out of peak torque at highway speed? Um, right now, it just depends on the situation. Um, uh, lighter loads, I will run it. Right, at, right on peak torque, uh, you know, 925 RPM cruising down the road, um, uh, you know, between 55 and 65 mile an hour, depending if I'm in direct drive or overdrive. Um, so, yeah, keeping keeping the revs low, I think, is, is very important to, to maximize your fuel economy, and it helps to control the parasitic drag in the engine, and that's what downsped's all about, the the fewer RPM we're turning, the less drag we have internally in the engine, and thus we have better fuel efficiency. 
So what are the practical limits then to, uh, to downspeeding? I mean, how far can we technically go with this? Well, with the evolving technologies, um, as we get away from, you know, the variable geometry turbos into some of the newer um, technologies that are out there, you know, with turbo compounding and asymmetric turbos and, and whatnot, um, we're going to see some, some very low numbers. Um, I think we're going to maybe move away from the larger displacement engines, uh, the maybe the 15-liter engines, because we're going to have to put some more beef into the bottom ends of, of some of these engines to handle the lower RPM. Um, and that being said, that displacement becomes kind of a burden weight-wise. Um, so 13 and even 11-liter engines, I think, are going to be what we're going to see more of in the future. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that that 900 RPM thing, that's going to become a pretty uh, pretty standard thing, I think, across all the brands. I think they're all going to get down there. They're all going to achieve it in a little bit different fashion, but they're all going to get down there. Now, are you, are you talking about a strictly over-the-road truck or not something that's geared for mountains or city work? This would be a, a rolling hills, flat interstate kind of uh, kind of spec no here's the interesting thing i think what's going to happen is we're going to see and i'm working a, a lot right now with these very very wide ratio transmissions where i have crawler gears on one end and an overdrive on the other and overlapping gear ranges and so this truck even though it's capable of of turning very low RPMs at highway speeds. It's also very adaptable. I can run it in the mountains heavy um, because I have choices in in the in the gear ranges where those that they overlap. You know, uh, a direct overlaps um, overdrive. The first underdrive overlaps direct, so it, it opens up a lot of possibilities. And as we make the truck smarter and smarter, and they understand grade and they understand weight um, more accurately they'll be able to pick what gear they need to be in to accomplish what job. And the majority of the time, they're going to be able to keep the truck down sped. There will be an occasion where, you know what, it makes sense to run a little higher on the horsepower curve, and it'll do that. But the overwhelming majority of the time, it's going to keep it, you know, down on the, down on the torque curve and, and uh, be extremely fuel efficient. Well, for the folks who don't follow you on Facebook, what, what sort of fuel economy numbers are you turning? <laughs> well, I just done a uh, I just done a turn down. For, we're located in Norwalk, Ohio. I done a turn down to Cincinnati, kind of a a day trip. Um, I went down with uh, I don't know, maybe ten or twelve thousand pounds in the box. It wasn't real heavy going down, and it was in the high elevens. And I kicked that load off, and I came back empty. Customer needed a trailer right away, and that came back in the mid thirteens. Um, pretty respectable numbers, you know what I mean? And, yeah. And I've done several runs from Norwalk, Ohio, up towards the Buffalo area. And, and these are, um, you know, right in that 80,000-pound gross combination vehicle weight range, um, 10, 10.1, 10.2, 10.4, um, on a real consistent basis uh, with, with the downsped powertrain. A lot of the critics will say, well, you know, if you're not running 80,000, you're not really trucking. Uh, but if you look at the average weight of a truckload, I think it's something like 65 or 70,000. That, that's exactly right. When you're looking at general van freight, um, despite what everybody says, 
they are not running 80,000 pounds all, all the no, time. No, no, most and aren't. We do it. We, yeah, we do on occasion. Um, we're just like everybody else. In fact, our average gross combination vehicle weight for the fleet almost exactly mirrors the national average, and I guess that's what you would expect. We're a, a mid-sized fleet here in the Midwest, and we're running general freight, and you know, 68,000 pounds gross combination, that, that's our average. So there you go. I mean, <laughs> nothing out yeah. of the ordinary there, right down the middle. <laughs> no, no, yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Very typical, very average duty cycle. Now, I, I do split that duty cycle up into to local deliveries. Um, I've run a lot of regional stuff, and I've run some over-the-road stuff. And um, the downsped powertrain, when you have the right transmission involved, does very well even in local P and which which is a shocker to me even in the local P and D, it's done extremely well. And um, I've had some some direct drive trucks that I have spec specifically for that local P and D type duty cycle that I've really thought were optimized and dialed in tight. And my downsped powertrain, which originally I thought was just an over the road thing. It's just really done a phenomenal job. It's actually turned in better numbers than my my direct drive spec that I developed specifically for P and D. Well, they used to call it gear fast, run slow. Uh, yep. Just for the heck of it, do the math. How fast will mm-hmm. that truck go? Opened right up. Uh, uh, One hundred and forty eight mile an hour is the top end <laughs> potential. <laughs> That's a bull hauler. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> Hey, Joel, it's th- kind of fun when you make make that trip out across Wyoming and you can roll right with those guys and they're running about five miles a gallon and you're running nine, nine and a half. So it's, it's fun. That must irritate the heck out of them. Do you rub it in when you go past them? <laughs> On occasion. <laughs> <laughs> On occasion. <laughs> hey, well, listen, Joel, thanks for sharing that uh, down-speeding insight with us. Uh, uh, best of luck with it and keep doing it. You're doing a great job. Thanks, Jim. HDT Talks Trucking was brought to you by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, an intimate fleet networking event that takes place November 16th, 17th, and 18th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn what HDTX can do for you and your fleet. When the first round of fuel economy and GHG reduction mandates rolled out back in 2016, I think a few of us were still a little leery about all that advanced technology that might be needed. In Phase 2, it's probably safe to say that we're a little less spooked by technology, and as long as that technology isn't too complex or expensive, what's not to like about a whopping increase in fuel efficiency? Well, thanks for making our first two seasons successful. We've had some fantastic guests on the podcast so far, and we've got more coming your way in Season 3. We'll meet HDT's 2020 fleet innovators. We'll hear from the National Transportation Safety Board on why it thinks we need to mandate collision mitigation systems for all highway vehicles. And we'll get some expert tips on reducing driver turnover and making your company a more satisfying place to work. HTT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbitt Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening. Thank you.